It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Before we started a new multi-part series about a quadruple restaurant homicide, we decided to have a conversation with one of our favorite people in the true crime community, Bones of Autumn. Bones is a Redditor based in Indiana who researches and writes about a variety of crimes from years past. Kevin and I first found her work on the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit and soon became major fans. We will include links to her articles that we mention in our show notes. Feel free to take a gander at those as you listen along. Last week, we discussed how she discovered a previously unknown serial killer, how she finds such bizarre cases, and how she manages to conduct such amazing research. This week, we will cover the disappearance of Lauren Spearer, the bizarre case of a mysterious message scrawled on a chalkboard near a dead body, and the little-known serial killer Ted Carr. 
This week on The Murder Sheet, part two of our talk with Bones of Autumn. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the murder sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is reporting from Reddit. An interview with Bones of Autumn, part two. Uh, you mentioned Ted Carr earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about Ted Carr in that case? Ted is a case that is another one that I have. I I go and I back and I work on it for a while, and then I have to leave it alone and come back again another time. Uh, that's that whole. That is it is just a rabbit hole of of rabbit hole cases. I feel like I could never find out everything I would want to know about Ted and his life. Although I have spoken to multiple people who have actually known Ted from uh, one of his one of his nephews all the way to one of his neighbors who have contacted me, and unfortunately they couldn't tell me anything more than I was already. In fact, the nephew told me that he didn't even know a quarter of the stuff about him until he had read my write-up online. <laughs> so uh, I-, I couldn't find out any information about him, but. His case came about because of a, a picture in the newspaper archives I just happened to happened to stumble on, and it caught my eye, and it was a picture of the police outside of a, a small house on Olney Street in Indianapolis. And, of course, if you see police standing outside and it's in the newspaper, there's probably a crime that happened. So I, you know, decided to read the caption on the picture, and it said that a man had been found dead of carbon monoxide poisoning, which seems at first, you know, oh, no, that's awful, until you read the next part, which said there was also bodies in his trunk. And that is what caught my eye, is that they found bodies in the trunk of this man's car. And through, I'd say, three or four months' worth of research, I was able to compile somewhat of Ted's life story. It is in no way complete. There there are, I've, I've been doing my best to try to figure out how to contact overseas information. Uh, I, I think that he could possibly have been responsible for a murder of a young girl when he was serving overseas. 
but it's very difficult to find media when it's in a foreign language. I, I try my best with that, but I get so frustrated with it every time. I I always end up just leaving it and saying I'm going to come back to it eventually. But Ted, he, he was such a case. It was such a deep rabbit hole. He was another person that I feel like he started out smaller and it progressed into into a more serious act. Um, you know, he has two victims that, and I, allegedly that, uh, uh, you know, I cannot say for sure that he is responsible for, for their disappearance, but two of them were never even found. And I believe that that is what he was in the process of doing when he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. He was trying to go dispose of two more victims somewhere, but and in a really, really bizarre twist of fate, he accidentally killed himself in the process. Wow. Can, can you tell us about the process of, of getting those two potential victims added to uh, NamUs? Well, I couldn't, I, I, okay, I want to say this first. NamUs is excellent. I love NamUs. It is one of the best resources out there for missing, unidentified, unclaimed people. But they are so full and busy all the time that it's almost impossible <laughs> to get a new case listed on there right now. Um, I happened to get in right before they stopped accepting new cases, and it was just out of luck that <laughs> they happened to accept the case. And it still is pending on NamUs because... Indianapolis police have not gave them the go-ahead to list it yet on there. Um, I contacted them through an email, and I sent them my story. I sent them probably a ridiculous amount of newspaper clippings. I had like two albums worth of newspaper clippings. I always worry when I send things, these people are going to think, oh, my gosh, what is this person sending me? But after they responded, they told me they were very interested in this, and that they believed that I have a very good case here against Ted being the person that probably took them. And so I, I eventually got them approved to be put on to NamUs, and we are just waiting for the Indianapolis police to confirm that they are still missing, although everybody knows that they are still missing. It's just that's probably not super high on the detective list there to go confirm it on NamUs. Yeah, has the IMPD like been in touch to say, oh yeah, we're on it or anything like that? Oh no, no, absolutely not. I think that they probably uh, will never contact me. I, I, I'm very close with a few people from NamUs that actually work for the for the organization, and even working through NamUs, they have cases that have been pending for two years now at this point to be approved by the local police department to be listed on there as a missing person. So I, uh, I, I'm hopeful that it will be soon, but I'm not going to hold my breath on it. Uh, to jump back a minute, you said that Ted Carr, through some uh, strange stroke of fate, ended up uh, killing himself. Can you tell us uh, what happened there? Ted had kidnapped a woman and her son, and put them in the trunk of his car and had ran a hose with duct tape attached to the muffler of his car 
into the trunk of the car. Um, what's particularly gruesome is that they were completely alive when they were put into the trunk of the car because after they were discovered, they found fingernail scratches on the trunk of the car from where she had tried to to claw her way out of the car, which is so awful. Um, but it was a woman named Karen and her son, Robert. Robert was two and Karen was uh, 24, I believe. Um, uh, actually, there were three bodies in his trunk now that I'm saying that. There were three because there was also a girl named Sandra Harris that was a friend of Karen. Um, they were they were all three uh, dead when the police found them, and both of the women had been sexually assaulted. Uh, Ted was found on the floor. He had the vacuum cleaner hose leading from his tailpipe um, into the trunk of the car, which was shut. And I believe what happened was he went out to go check on his victims, and he hadn't cracked the garage. So the garage itself was filled with carbon dioxide from the car running inside of the closed garage. And when he went inside, he opened the trunk, and I think the fumes combined in the trunk with the fumes that were already in the garage overpowered him, and he fell down on the floor and died of carbon monoxide poisoning before his wife Harriet came out and found him and the bodies in the trunk of his car. That's insane karma. <laughs> Jesus. But, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine being his wife I, and finding something like that. A lot of people say, you know, she must have known something was something was up or, you know, why did she choose to get buried next to him all, you know, even after knowing? I, lots of questions about Harriet. There's, there's a few and I, I can't say whether she knew or she didn't know what Ted was up to. I can say that she stuck by him even after he had been arrested previously for kidnapping two hitchhikers from Nebraska. And he, he acted like uh, he would give them jobs. He told them that he owned a terrific um, like sports hunting outdoor type shop and cabin. And he said, you know, yeah, of course, I'll give you guys jobs, and everything went fine. And according to the girl, it just kind of was like a switch. He was fine. Everything was going great. He was laughing, and then he suddenly just turned very, very violent very quickly, and he ordered them out of the car at gunpoint, and then he he chained up the husband or her boyfriend. I'm not sure if they were married, uh, and then proceeded to to rape the girl in front of them, and eventually just turned them loose and let them go. But Harriet knew of this and stayed with him even after that. So you would have to question whether she knew if other things were going on or if she just chose to ignore them. Or maybe she was a victim of abuse herself and was scared of Ted. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. 
a business student turned convicted murderer, now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. This is kind of a cliched question, but all these horrible details of these awful crimes, does concentrating so much of your energy on this this awful side of the world, has it affected you emotionally or in any way? I would say it hasn't affected me necessarily emotionally. There are times that I will pull back and take a break from reading about them because it is hard to to read about. It's uh, never an easy topic to cover, but I think what keeps me going are all of the people that, when I do get a victim's family member that says, you know, thank you, that, honestly, it makes it all worth it to me. I, um, I, I always be sure to, you know, keep my mental health in check while I'm, while I'm researching these things and try not to let myself get, you know, too, too deep into them, and if I feel like I am, I do try to pull back and take a break from them, but for the most part, I would say that that I actually enjoy very much doing what I do. It's um, it's important to me, and 
and uh, I, I I just enjoy it honestly. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck. Not everything you write about is uh, crime related. I remember I saw a post recently about a person's house that was being hit by rocks for like three hours, even when police were present. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, occasionally, if you look back far enough in my posts, I like to I like to put together ten or so of these random mysteries that aren't that are, are crimes, but they're not always you know, terrible crimes. They're things that, you know, in fact, you could laugh at most of them and just wonder how in the world could this have happened? The rock incident is one that had stuck with me for a very long time. And it was, a family was pelted by, their entire house was pelted by rocks of all sizes for hours with, with police being there. And the angle at which the rocks came at the house were like somebody was throwing them, not like they were coming down from the sky. Had broken windows. They had they searched the entire area, thinking that you know there has to be kids nearby with slingshots, is what they assumed at first. But of course, as many rocks that hit the house, it would have to be a kid with a slingshot cape, you know, a catapult, if you will. A catapult would have had to have been used to launch the absurd number of rocks that kept pelting their house for hours, and there's just no explanation for that. I've I've tried to come up with a good one, but honestly, I have no explanation for that particular story. Okay, I I, I missed that rock article, so I just got to ask: like, did this ever happen again in the area, or was this this like family's like one bizarre incident? Totally, totally isolated as far as the severity of how many rocks came and for how long. Now, the family did say that several houses on the block had had a window broken by rocks in the last few months, but it was, it was like the summertime, and a one window being broken by a kid who threw a rock in the summer seems probably not related to the 5,000 rocks that poured down over their house for hours on end with police on site. So I, I did find other cases of similar events happening in other states, though, when I looked it up, but just like the one in Indiana, they seem to offer little to no explanation. One was that a a, uh, a funnel cloud had picked up rocks from a nearby beach and thrown them at a house. But as you know, Indiana does not does not have you know the ocean isn't nearby, and where they live, there were no huge lakes or anything that could account for that. So. Honestly, that one might remain a mystery to me completely because I have no clue what the explanation would be behind that one. See, what we got to do is is put together some sort of smiley face killer esque theory where we're just trying to tie these That's all together. What needs done. Obviously, <laughs> That's what needs done. There was a cult. It, it is totally the same people. It was a cult of rock throwers, and they were chucking rocks at people's houses all across the United States. <laughs> This is my headcanon now. It's fine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, the, the whole smiley things like that, I, oh, they make me laugh a little bit. I can't help but laugh at a few of them. And, and sometimes I, I I hear those theories on some of my write-ups, and I just have to say, you know, yeah, that's a great, that's a great theory. <laughs> but, of course, a lot of the time I think that is so bizarre. That is... That is so out of the box, but I just don't even think it could be possible. We have a few people that like to claim aliens are responsible for several well-known abductions around Indiana, and 
it's very hard to take those people serious when they, and I do believe they mean what they say. Mm -hmm. I just can't get on board with the alien abductions as far as people missing. No, (laughs) neither can we. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about the Brown family murders. Can you tell us about that case? Oh, that's a, that's my local one, actually. Uh, being from Brown County, I I was very I was very excited to tell that story, but I wasn't sure how people would take it. It's uh, now while it is still technically a mystery, a lot of people think that it's not much of a mystery, <laughs> only because they they say that that it that the people that are buried below there are all the Brown family is, is what they consider, but. But 90 years ago, uh, a double murder happened here in Brown County. And if you go out to a little place called Lake Lemon out here, there is a graveyard called Lanham Ridge Cemetery. And you'll see a marker there, a really nice marker that says Brown on it. And supposedly there are three people buried there, according to the stones. But technically there are only two people buried beneath the stone and one is missing um now i believe that the third person is not buried there although that seems to be the local rumor that he was later buried at a private funeral with his family but uh, i think that he simply i think that that the son probably killed the parents and then and then escaped all say and died later somewhere else along the line but it's a it's a cool local mystery, if anything else. <laughs> when would uh, the time period have been for for this? Do we have a sense? Nineteen thirty, I believe, is when it happened. You know, I should probably have like my notes out when I'm talking to you guys. I didn't even. I'm so unorganized. I'm just always a mess when it comes to organization. <laughs> okay, not at all, though. You're not. <laughs> it sounds like you do have your notes out, so don't worry about it. Uh, No, I totally, I thought, I thought I should probably have my notes out at this point, but I just, I'm I'm sitting outside talking to you guys and I figured I'll just wing it. I'm sure I can talk to them about this without messing up too many facts on there. (laughs) You'll have to forgive me if any of them are a little slightly off. I, sometimes these cases all blend together when I'm trying to remember the details of each one. So is it easier to research a case when it happens literally in your own hometown? Um, it's easier because I can go ask locals and I've also made great friends at this point with the elderly women who run the historical society here. And just my luck, they happen to be true crime fanatics. So they are very excited always to talk about any old crimes that happened around Brown County. They, they want to talk about them. I mean, I most of the time I have to encourage people to tell me more. With them, they will just, I have to cut them off because eventually they have gone on a tangent about the, the, the murderer's great, great, great grandson or something like that. So it's, it's actually easier only because people here are willing to talk about it and it's a short drive for me to go find out the information I, I want to know. The county clerk here, too, she's just great. She's helped me numerous times looking up just so many things she goes out of her way and i appreciate her to death she's uh she's the one that helps me find letters that i was looking for from a particular inmate to a judge here in brown county 
about the uh, Lauren Spear investigation. That's one that I also, I, I'm the one that started the subreddit for Lauren's case. Um, and it's a more popular, well-known one, obviously, but um, it is one that it's close to home for me and one that I particularly would like to see solved. Yeah, that one's close for home, weirdly enough, for Kevin and I, too. Kevin went to IU uh, undergrad and for law. Oh, yeah. And then I'm actually from uh, like like 10 minutes away from her hometown of Scarsdale. I'm from Bronxville, New York. And that was a really um, big case. And it was actually the year before I went to college. So people were talking about that quite a lot. Um, And it was just awful. You know, the parents and everything was just very... Very upsetting and tragic. Uh, I, I I can't I can't even read some of her mom's. I feel I feel I feel so horrible for her family. She seemed like such a you know such a nice girl and just you know people like to say oh she probably died of an overdose or things like that and it's like well have you ever been to college? I mean people do dumb stuff in college and and you can't blame the girl for going out and having a good time. You know you can't blame whoever is responsible for her disappearance though because clearly. Clearly, she didn't just go overdose somewhere and die on the side of the road. That wouldn't make very much sense as her body would have been found by now. But I hope all the time that whenever I see, I just saw recently on the news out here that they were they were digging out by a deer processing plant. And, of course, my heart just stopped. I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, they're out there digging, looking for Lauren. And it turned out it was, they were disposing of deer in like in the wrong way or something, and the FBI got involved some for some reason, so it had nothing to do with it. Jeez, wow, that's a that's quite a false alarm, though. I mean, um, yeah, no, it, it's it's such a sad case, and it just seems to really haunt haunt the area. Can you tell us about those letters you were referring to? Um, I don't know if you guys know who Daniel Messel is. He is the man who was responsible for killing Hannah Wilson. She was an IU student, and she was abducted one night after drinking at the same place Lauren happened to be at when she went missing. Um, Hannah went home, and it was very dark where she lived on her street in Bloomington. There were just, I I don't know why there were so few streetlights, but it was really dark in the area. She walked inside of her home, and her phone connected to the Wi-Fi there, and then all of a sudden, she was gone. Her roommates couldn't find her. She was missing. And uh, the following morning, Hannah's body was found on Plum Creek Road here in Brown County out here. Actually, I think that's technically Bloomington, but very close to the line, if not a little rural area out here. Uh, But her body was found, and the only reason the case was solved was because when they found Hannah's body, they also found a bright red cell phone at Hannah's feet that did not belong to Hannah, but belonged to Daniel Messel. And eventually they went to his house, and when when they pulled into the driveway, he was literally walking outside with a bag covered in bloody clothes that he had worn when when he had killed Hannah. Um, now, where where Daniel took Hannah, I believe, was not where he had intended to take her. He was taking her somewhere else, and Hannah was a, um, she was a very athletic girl, and I think that she probably woke up and fought back, and that caused him to pull over where he did, and I think probably a struggle happened, and he hit her with a maglite flashlight. He 
beat her to death with a mag light flashlight and then left her on the ground there. But the, the, the way that she had gone about getting, you know, the way that she'd been abducted, he had gone about getting her. I thought, you know, how similar is that to Lauren's case? I mean, it is, and this man has a very violent history. He was arrested here in Brown County for beating his elderly grandmother almost to death with a two-by-four because she wouldn't give him money, I think, is what was the, the motivation behind that there. Just a really terrible guy all around. Well, after he had been arrested, of course, it came out on the news pretty quickly that he could be a suspect in Lauren's case. And it kind of fizzled out for a short time there. Uh, you know, it, it was big when it came out, but nobody straight up said, this is, you know, the guy for Lauren. You know, we can't prove this. So it kind of just went away. But an inmate, named David Hayden, uh, he sent letters to a judge here in Brown County claiming that he was, um, cellmates with Daniel Messel for a short time, and that Daniel had told him about, you know, these these strange urges that he had when it came to women, which involved him hurting women. And David said he wanted to try to help this guy. This is his story now. I don't know how much of this is true. Um, but he eventually befriended him on the outside when they both got out of jail. Now, David was arrested again later, and that's when he started sending these letters was after Daniel was arrested. From jail, he sent letters to the judge here in Brown County claiming that he helped Daniel Messel move Lauren's body, that he, that he had not had anything to do with her initial murder, but that he had helped move Lauren's body to the Lake Lemon area. And the judge completely wrote it off as being, you know, the rantings of a crazy inmate. And a lot of people say, well, he was probably doing this so he could get time off. Of, but he only had, you know, a, a very short amount of time. I mean, less than three months left on his sentence when he was when he was writing these letters. So as far as getting time off, I don't know the motivation behind that. But the news mentions these letters briefly, very briefly, and a few of the details that they happened to mention on there caught my eye, I'll say, uh, caught my ear, if you will. I heard them mention that in one of the letters, he referred to a woman named Rebecca, is what they said on the news. Well, Lauren has a sister named Rebecca. And after I went down to the county clerk's office, and and begged her to help me find these letters, in which she ended up getting a copy from the sheriff's department here for me. Just she's she's an amazing person for doing all of that. But uh, all the letters are on my Reddit account. You can view them all on there. But um, David states in there that when they moved Lauren's body, she had um, an ID card in her pocket that that I guess Daniel didn't know was in there initially. This is all from uh, him. I'm not saying any of this happened. Mm -hmm. But he said the ID card was from a woman named Rebecca. He said that looked a lot like Lauren. A lot of people know Lauren was underage, and Bloomington is not particularly known for checking IDs. That's very true. A lot of college kids go into the bars here quite often and never get ID'd. Or they'll sit in the back and a friend will buy them a drink and they'll come sit down. 
But according to a few people, Lauren did present an ID to go into the bar that evening. Now, Lauren's ID wouldn't have worked, but her older sister, who had also attended IU, her ID would have worked. And according to him, it was an IU identification card. And so I I really wanted to read these letters. I, I wanted to read them very much. And when I got them and read everything, I cannot honestly say which way I feel about it. It's something that I... I would like to know if it, you know, more about it. The prosecutor here, he is also uh, just an excellent person. He seemed to hint at me in several emails that he believes Daniel Messel may be responsible for Lauren's case, but that he has no way of officially proving that. And he actually encouraged me to investigate it farther. So I don't know if that's saying anything, but uh, the prosecuting attorney seems to think that that's the right path there. I know a lot of people think that the boys she was with that night might have something to do with it. They very well may. I, you know, I'm 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 nobody, but as somebody who's speculating here, this is all just pure speculation from somebody who spends way too much time reading about all of it. Wow, I never even heard of that angle, but that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's uh. It's one that it almost seems too good to be true. Everything seems to line up so perfectly, you know, and and I don't know some of the details that the police may know. You know, there might be this big golden thing as well. We know for a fact that that didn't happen because this happened, but it just hasn't been, you know, ever made public and it won't be. So I could be way off on that. But my own personal theory is that at least in some way he may have been responsible for for her death. I went as far as looking up the old trivia schedule. Daniel Messel, he was uh, he'd go to the bars and he would play trivia. I think that it was a way for him to watch to watch the younger crowd there and kind of blend without, you know, looking like the creepy older guy sitting in the corner watching. And uh, it just so happens that he did trivia the night that he killed Hannah, I think that he, you know, saw her at the bar and decided that that was who he was going to follow. And I, when I went back and looked at his schedule, it happened he was out doing trivia the same night that Lauren was killed as well. And that just seems to me to make like too much sense. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too. I, I'm really blinded when it comes to this case. I, I, I'm, I feel so strongly about that particular angle. It's, like I said, I could be completely wrong, though. It's not like I'm so hard-headed that I'm saying that's what happened. But I, I, there's so many, so many similarities between them that it's hard to for me to see how it can't be related. Wow. Are there, are there other cases that have grabbed you the way that the Lauren Spira case has? Um, there is one in particular that has always stuck with me. Um, I, I don't have a particular reason that it has, other than, you know, it's a local Indiana case and that it involves a child, but I, I it was so hard to cover this case for me. Um, it just seemed like nobody did anything to, to try to find out what happened to this child. Uh, it was a, a little girl named Katie Clay, and uh, she lived in Indianapolis with her mom. And she somehow managed to get outside one night. It's, honestly, the details are very, 
They're very convoluted. I, I, she managed to get outside somehow, or she was lured out of her house. But her body was found the next day burning in a trash can nearby. And it was awful. The case just stuck with me for so long. And I've done, I've done too many trying to look up more stuff, trying to find anything I can about this case. But there just isn't anything else out there. And some of those cases I have to just accept, but I'm not going to find anything else out unless it's solved. And those are the ones that I just write about. And I put them out there in the hopes Maybe somebody somewhere on Reddit will have, you know, see this picture and think, oh, my gosh, I saw that little girl walking that night. And I saw this man walking up behind, you know, some little detail that could somehow close these cases that have just been completely erased from the history books, so to speak. That, that is such a sad story. It's a sad story, and it's also... Uh, it, it's bizarre. Um, I don't, I'm not, you know, parent shaming anybody here, but she was left, she was six and she was left alone at her house while her mom went out and drank at several bars throughout the night. And when she came home, when she went to bed, she, well, she kind of passed out. And then she woke up the next day and couldn't find Katie and Still didn't report it to the police because she said she had assumed Katie was outside playing somewhere in the neighborhood. And eventually Katie's sister told her, you know, no, I haven't seen her anywhere. And that's when the police were finally called. And that's when they found her body burning in a trash can nearby, which was, or no, actually they had found her body earlier is what it was. I, excuse me there. They had found her body that morning, but they didn't know that it belonged to her until the mom reported her missing that afternoon. Um, the family moved away really quickly after that, and that was kind of the end of the case. There was just never anything else about it. No suspects, no theories as to what happened or how she ended up where she ended up. It was it was a mess of a case to write about or even to read about, honestly. In terms of um, other cases with sort of um, bizarre details, which are ones we definitely like to cover too, I guess. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Candy Morris case, if you could speak more on that. Candy Morris. Um, let me think here. I believe she was the one who had the man who died. Or No, she he started dating the woman from from her search party, maybe? Yeah, that's the one. Think. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yes. All right. I'm just going to make sure I'm on the right, right mindset here. Uh, yeah. That one, uh, I don't know what to make of that one, if I'm being honest. Uh, was it a stroke of bad luck for her husband, or was there something more there? That one uh, that one bothered me a little bit, too. It was just the, the little detail of, of, you know, having two women pass away, you know. And, and uh, okay, I guess probably for anybody who doesn't know about the case, I should do somewhat of a background on the case, and I'm going to do my best to try to, try to remember um i believe that she was a mother of three um she had a husband named david uh who was a little bit older than her i want to say she was in her late 20s and david was around 40 40 to 45 ish um 
Candy, let's see here. I believe she went missing after dropping off a friend. She had dropped off a friend around Michigan City is where she lived, I think. Um, she had dropped off a friend in, like, the early hours of the morning. And uh, then she was just missing. Nobody could find her after that. And during one of the searches for her, her husband, David, met a woman named Anna, I believe is her name. And they ended up in a very public relationship very quickly after that. Um, and let's see here. I, I want to say it was like a year later, uh, Candy's remains were found um, in a different town in Indiana that was nearby there. Um, that was, it, I believe it was close to where she had dropped the friend off that she was last with. But on the day that her remains were found, David's new girlfriend, Anna, died in her sleep. Um, just had no previous medical issues or anything like that. But they attributed it to an accidental overdose. Um, and, you know, that could very well be just a very bizarre coincidence. But um, it turned out that later, David was actually arrested for murder. Uh, he murdered a man from a car lot. And so, if anything, he was definitely capable of something awful. Uh, now, whether or not he was responsible for the two ladies that passed away, I'm not sure, but it would seem that he could be a good candidate for a possible suspect in that case. Yeah, it seems to be a real uh, trail of uh, death behind him. Yeah, exactly. And then one that uh, always kind of haunted me that you wrote about was uh, Helen Tolboski. She was the uh, custodian at Notre Dame College. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, with the, with the note on the blackboard, I believe, is the one that you're, you're yeah, referring to. Can you to. tell us about that one? Um, Helen was a cleaning lady for Notre Dame College, and um, she was working in the, I believe it was the, like the aeronautical um, department. Um, let's see. I believe it was a professor. A professor came in that morning and found Helen dead on the floor. And she had been shot. But written on the blackboard was a a really bizarre note that, you know, nobody claimed, nobody knew who it was written by for sure. But, you know, people like to speculate that maybe Helen wrote it. And it said something to the effect of um, the uh, the date, like a date, but I believe the date happened to be wrong. And it said the day I died. I, I, I'm almost convinced of that, but uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm trying to think of the actual quote from from her that was written on the board there. I mean, the, not from her, but whoever wrote that on the board. But students were asked, you know, did you write this on the board? Who wrote this on the board? And the, the big theory is that maybe she surprised a robber, but why force her to write a note on the blackboard was, that was a, an interesting detail that, that stuck with me as well. And nothing would be missing. And, and another thing is if somebody had broken there to rob the place, they couldn't have known what was inside 
previously then because the building housed huge pieces of equipment, nothing that could be taken out by hand or at all. I mean, this would be something that would take a, you know, a, a huge operation to move any of these gigantic pieces of machinery. Um, so what they were in there for originally, I couldn't tell you or why they happened to, why they killed her, because it seemed like from what everybody said about her that she probably would have, you know, just said, you know, take whatever you want and let me go. And the note is so creepy. Yeah, I um, I think that it was the first case of murder on the Notre Dame campus, actually. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure. I think I remember reading that part, though. Uh, she... I'm, I'm finally got my notes out here. Let me look here. Yeah, so it just said two twenty one seventy five. The day I died, um, it was. I believe that it was in March. Let me see here. Yeah, it was in March twenty second. Was the day that she died, um, nineteen seventy five. But she wrote, you know, February twenty first, nineteen seventy five. The day I died. That's what was written on the on the blackboard in the classroom that she had been cleaning. Yeah, that's very strange. Oh, that's so creepy. I uh, honestly, I, I wondered if maybe her killer had had some kind of tragic event happen on that day, and maybe that was his way of saying, you know, this is the day I lost everything and why I'm doing what I'm doing. But when you have cases like those where killers leave messages behind, more likely than not, they're going to leave another message behind. I'm sure you guys know, you know, the lipstick killer or the Zodiac killer, all of those, anybody that's known for leaving messages, they leave multiple ones behind. And so I can't honestly, with this one, I can't come up with a very good theory as to what happened other than that message may have been there before the, before the killing even took place. You know, maybe that was something that, Somebody had wrote on that blackboard as a joke, and just after the murder, they didn't want to step in and say, I wrote that, but I didn't mean anything by it. Or, But, you know, the handwriting analysis that they did, they said that they thought that it, there was a good possibility that the handwriting could be Helen's. So that hadn't been completely out of the question that Helen was forced to write write something like that i just don't i don't understand the significance of the date that's why i wonder if maybe the person if they did force her to write it had forced her to write that particular date for a reason right it, it's really uh it's really bizarre <laughs> look i really it is. it's, it's yeah. a strange i really want to uh thank you for taking the time to uh talk with us today it's been really really fascinating yeah is there anything we didn't ask about that you wanted to talk about or mention or anything i know we've kept you on here for like an hour but I just uh throw it back to you no. hey you guys are more than fine i trust me i don't i don't mind i could probably talk all day about about these random cases so no i i just i really appreciate you guys taking the time to you know to cover these and I love when any of these cases get more attention. So honestly, I I really appreciate you guys covering this on your podcast uh, with the hopes that, you know, it'll help these cases, you know, be seen by more people, be heard about by more people, and maybe eventually be solved.
Thanks again to Bones of Autumn. We really enjoyed talking with her and encourage you to read her work on Reddit. We have included links to some of her articles in our show notes. And a quick personal note. We definitely welcome your emails and comments, but want to give you a heads up that we may be slow to respond until we get back from our honeymoon in late June. Just know that if you experience a delayed response, we're not ignoring you, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.